This episode of the Golf.com podcast is brought to you by the USGA. The USGA takes center stage in the golf world this week as the U.S. Open kicks off at Aaron Hills in Wisconsin. For more on the event, visit usopen.com. That was an ad, but this is the story. I'm your host, Sean Zock. And since it's June, this story has a lot to do with the U.S. Open. This annual national championship, which pits professionals and amateurs on the same playing field for the same trophy and the same glory, it's referred to as the ultimate test in golf. And oftentimes, it 100% lives up to that billing. It's a test of ups and downs and handling those ups and downs in the most efficient way possible. Players don't win the US Open in their first try. They play one, maybe two, maybe three, They realize the brutality of a course so difficult and a competition so fierce. They learn from it and often come out on the other side a better player because of it. You could argue that, in that sense, golf, and especially golf at the US Open, is a lot like life, filled with ups and downs, peaks and valleys, ebb and flow, good times and bad, failure before success. Similar to golf, life has good breaks, bad breaks, double breaks and triple breaks. As amateur golfers, we are so readily able to get over those breaks. We walk off the 18th green into the 19th hole and we can laugh about them, pay up on our tiny bets and revel in another round complete, and then we return to the rest of our lives. But what if golf was your life? Like what if you were a professional golfer? The ups and downs of a US Open, a British Open, a Sony Open, or even some of the opens on the mini tours, those ups and downs mean so much more. To some, they mean everything. This is the story of Andy Dillard, a 55-year-old salesman in the oil industry in Oklahoma. Andy Dillard? Who? As random as this story may seem, listen to it and then ask yourself how random it actually is. The US Open and its qualifying place some of the greatest golfers on this planet on the same stage as some of the game's biggest dreamers. At one time in his life, Andy Dillard was a professional golfer. But 25 years ago this month, in June of 92, Dillard had fallen from the lofty graces of the PGA Tour and turned into one of those dreamers. Andy worked his way into qualifying for the 92nd US Open held that year at Pebble Beach in Northern California. He had been down before But this time, Andy was about as down as he could possibly be. I'll explain the details of that later, but it was at this point that the maddening, vexatious, cursed game of golf, it gave Dillard another chance to go up, to reach another of his life's peaks. With that chance, he ran with it, sprinted with it, and he set a US Open record that still stands to this day. But also with that chance, he found years and years of sorrow. Such is life in this up and down game. Such is life for many professional golfers who never win on the PGA Tour. Andy Dillard grew up in Tyler, Texas. You'll soon hear the Southern drawl in his voice. Tyler is a town of about 100,000 people. It's about 100 miles east of Dallas, where Andy grew up as a stocky kid, but with supportive parents who let him figure out just what he wanted to do and let him figure it out on his own. Nearby sat Briarwood Golf Club, and the attraction between him and the game was basically magnetic. 
I started playing. The first time I went to the golf course was when I was eight or nine years old. <clears throat> and uh, by the time when I was 10 years old, I knew I had a special talent. I had a gift. When I was 12, I was playing the head pro at our golf course for money, gambling. I had a guy that would back me, and we, we would go out and, and play for $25 a hole. Back in those days, in the early 70s, $25 a hole was a lot of money. <laughs> so uh, the playing for money part, I enjoyed. I enjoyed the the thrill, the the juices. I just I enjoyed the action. It was at that age when I was 12 that I knew that's what I wanted to do, that uh, I would have a chance to play professionally, and that's what I uh, pursued. He'd meet that pro. This guy's name was Jim Henderson. At the course every day in the summer at 6.30 a.m. They'd gamble their way around the course and work through Andy's game. He was short, chubby, and he had a great putting stroke. And as he would explain it, he also had an exceptional amount of hand-eye coordination. Andy would win the Texas State Junior at age 15. He'd also go on and win the AJGA Tournament of Champions in 1979. And with those two wins alone, that's one heck of a junior golf career. Uh, when I was coming out of high school, I could have gone anywhere I wanted to uh, to play college golf, other than the University of Texas. Why was the University of Texas off limits? Um, they told me they didn't think I could make it through school. Did Did they have a reason? That sounds ridiculous. It was. I told them, hey, if Earl Campbell can get a degree from Texas, I think I can make it through school. So uh, uh, Earl was from Tyler, and, and I knew his his grades weren't that good coming out of high school, but he was Earl Campbell, you know. <laughs> so. so no Texas, no Hook'em Horns. Instead, Andy went north to Oklahoma State University, where a nationally relevant program would give him the opportunity to reach the PGA Tour, to mature into an even better player, and to compete for a national championship every single season. That's what he hoped for. And he was exactly right in those hopes. While Diller was on campus, Oklahoma State won a national title in 1983. They finished runner-up in both 82 and 84. Andy himself, he was a three-time All-American, and he was first runner-up at the 1982 NCAA tournament, finishing just two strokes behind Billy Ray Brown. It was at Oklahoma State where Andy made some lifelong friends, friends that he would lean on in the future years when his game wasn't great. He won three events there, and he earned a very interesting nickname. I'll tell you the story, but I, and I don't care if you print it or whatever. It's pretty funny. Willie Wood and I, who plays on the Champions Tour now, we were drinking beer at a bar in, in Colorado Springs at the Broadmoor. And we were going to go to another establishment. And one of our friends told us we couldn't get in. They were going to ID us. Well, anyways, we said we could, so we went. And this friend or other buddy of ours followed us over there. And so when we tried to get in, they they checked our IDs and ran us out. And he was sitting in a Michelin tire dealership. And he started laughing at us and looked up and saw the Michelin tire man and said, hey, that looks like you. So they called me Mitch for a while. And then they found out that the Michelin man's name was Bibby. So I've been Bib ever since. Andy Bibb Dillard. Now, I started this podcast saying that golf can be all about managing the ups and downs. And to this point, 
Bib Dillard, he's had a whole lot of ups. That's how it tends to go for uber-talented golfers. They steamroll through junior golf, high school golf, maybe even college golf. And then they reach the pros and living on your own and paying for everything on your own and missing the cut on your own by one or by two, maybe by three. It all gets pretty tough pretty quick. Bib surely had some downs coming his way, but after just one year of playing golf in Asia, he made his way through the annual qualifying series events for the PGA Tour known as Q School. It was a cutthroat process that promoted only the best players in tip-top form. Anybody else was relegated to the various developmental tours and mini-tours around the world. Young 23-year-old Andy Dillard, he made it through that grueling test by tying for 20th. The next year, Bibb would go on to make 58% of his cuts in 86, and he started off 1987 with a pair of top 20 finishes as he entered the Honda Classic. Two rounds later, he found himself paired with his boyhood idol, Jack Nicholas. It was crazy. The number, the amount of people that were out watching. Uh, obviously, they weren't watching me. <laughs> but uh, And I knew Jack because his son, Jackie, and I were the same age and had grown up playing junior and college golf together. Uh, so uh, it wasn't like I was out there with somebody I didn't know. I knew Jack. But uh, getting to play in a tournament there with him was, I remember like it was yesterday, going home and I was staying with Scott Verplank. And I said, hey, I think I'm going to get paired with Jack tomorrow. And he, he acted like it wasn't that big a deal. I said, hey, it's a great big deal to me, brother. <laughs> And it still is, still to this day. You know, and the older I get, the bigger deal it is to me. So uh, at the time when I was playing golf, uh, I expected those things. So, uh, and now that I don't play golf, I look back and go, holy cow. How did you play those two days? The Saturday, I played great. We had barely made the cut. I was four under through probably 15 holes. And it's kind of funny, I was driving out to the golf course that morning, and I told myself, hey, if, if I am one shot ahead of Jack and have a chance to make bogey on the last hole on purpose and play with him again tomorrow, I'm going to do that. And so uh, as the day went on, I was playing real well, and I made a nine on a par three. Actually, he made an eight, but that's not what matters like here. the 16th hole. And then I birdied 17, and we ended up getting paired together on Sunday. So I was driving home, and I, <laughs> and I thought that really wasn't what I had planned, but I get to play with Jack again, so it was worth it. <laughs> Let's take a step back for a second. You've got a kid from Tyler, Texas, who plays his way to scholarship at Oklahoma State because the University of Texas didn't want him. Then he plays his way into the PGA Tour, and all of a sudden he's fulfilling a lifelong dream playing alongside the Golden Bear. Andy Dillard was living the good life. Was living the good life. In late 1988, just 18 months after playing the weekend alongside Jack Nicklaus, Andy was in trouble. He had missed the cut or withdrawn from 10 straight events. In his eight other tour events that year, his best finish was 40th. He made just $5,740. Now, anyone who understands the tour or understands professional golf, they know how big of an issue this was. Job security for a non-tournament winner depends almost entirely on how much money you make, and Bibb didn't nearly make enough money. Andy would fail to qualify during the ensuing Q School series, 
No big deal, though. I mean, that's his mindset. He'd make it back to the tour in no time, right? And everything tended to work out for this guy. Oh, it's brutal. And uh, at the finals of tour school in 1989, uh, the last round, I four-putted a hole and missed getting my tour card by one stroke at the finals. Is it just soul-crushing? Sure, it is, but you move on. You know, you... You're young and you think, hey, I'll get them next year, and you keep on grinding and keep on playing. Bib Dillard would just have to wait a little bit, and then he'd be back on tour in due time. Well, not in 1990, not in 1991, not in 1992. By the time spring turned to summer in 92, Bib Dillard was struggling. Sure, he'd played decent golf on what is the current equivalent of the Web.com Tour, golf's minor league. But he was ranked outside the top 300 players in the world. He wasn't necessarily struggling in terms of golf form, but more so struggling in opportunity, in much the same way that an actor from a cancelled sitcom doesn't automatically get a quick call for another gig. Hollywood doesn't owe anyone anything, and neither does the PGA Tour. Dillard wasn't winning events on this secondary tour, and he wasn't getting sponsors' exemptions into PGA Tour events, so largely, he wasn't making much money. In 1990, he had five top fives on the secondary tour that netted him just 34 grand, 24th best. In 91, that total dropped back to just 10 grand, which was 96th best. By June of 92, Andy had gone months without picking up a legitimate check. His bank account was bleeding, and a one check band aid wasn't going to be enough to fix it. He needed a real break to go back up after a series of downs. He needed the 92 U.S. Open. I had been playing uh, really, really good in some mini tour events, and uh, I just hadn't had a chance to put it on a big stage. At the time, the U.S. Open qualifier, the first two rounds came, came along, I knew my game was at a pretty high level. The, I won the first stage of local qualifying for the U.S. Open here in Oklahoma City. Then the second stage I signed up for was in Memphis, Tennessee, where the PGA Tour was. So they had more spots, but the competition you were playing against was uh, the best players in the world. So uh, I drove over to Memphis in my truck and tried to qualify for the Memphis Open on Monday in the U.S. Open on Tuesday, and I was playing good, and I just I figured, hey, if I could make one of these, I would have a good a good trip over there. Well, as it turned out, I made both of them. You could call that a break. Dillard made it through two days of qualifying for two different events, and it's definitely worth explaining these qualifiers are not easy. They're actually incredibly difficult. Like 60 or 70 players vying for only a handful of spots, a good round does not suffice. You need a great round, and sometimes two great rounds. This was a two-day hot streak that Andy desperately needed. So, his next two weekends would be back on the PGA Tour, and he'd have to make the most out of them to jumpstart his career once again. He ended up making the cut in Memphis, thanks in large part to a first-round 66. And Bibb told me that as well as he played that week, as well as he struck the ball, he didn't make any putts. And thus, he didn't make all that much money. He tied for 61st and made just $2,300. But, but, he had a ticket on a chartered plane to the U.S. Open. That was the most important part. 
he was headed to Pebble Beach, and he was feeling great about his game. My golf game suited a U.S. Open-style golf course. So, uh, and I'd played Pebble Beach quite a bit, so I had a lot of good feelings and a lot of a lot of good vibes going into the golf tournament before it ever started. You get confidence from having some nice positive results, some good stuff happen to you. And I had had good stuff, meaning good shots and playing good, for probably a month leading up to that point. Happy as he was at the time, Bib is leaving out a pretty crucial detail here. The truth is, he was broke. Those multiple years of not making much money, multiple years of paying entry fees, missing the cut, and having a net loss week, multiple years of traveling around looking for that lucky break. It cost him about everything he owned. By his recollection, he had just $600 to his name. But what does a guy with a lot of confidence do? A guy who's on a heater, who grew up gambling on the course, pressing and double pressing, fooling himself and fooling others instead of grinding away with a swing coach on the driving range. That guy books a flight for his then girlfriend, sends her out to California. He shacks up with an old college buddy and he hits press one more time. I was dead ass busted. I didn't have 50 cents to my name. I knew I had the, my check coming from Memphis, but I didn't have it. And so on Tuesday at the U.S. Open, I wrote a $1,500 hot check to the USGA so we'd have enough money to eat on that week and get through the week. And plus, I had to fly back to Memphis and get my truck out of long-term parking and had to put gas in it to get back to Oklahoma City. <laughs> and I knew the USGA paid $1,000 if you just finished 36 holes. So after writing that hot check, I thought, come hell or hot water, whether I break a finger or a leg or uh, get sick at my stomach, I've got to finish 36 holes because i got to have that $1,000 to help cover this hot check I've written. As fate would have it, first round came along, and I birdied the first six holes of the Dagum Golf Tournament. Wait, what? Broke, dead-ass, busted Andy Dillard with his truck parked back in Memphis? The tires swelling from the heat. He birdies the first six holes of the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach in California. That's exactly what happened. More on that in a minute. And now, one quick message from the USGA. You may know the USGA for their 14 annual championships, which are widely regarded as the ultimate tests in golf. But there's more to the USGA than just the golf competitions. In fact, USGA scientists are currently working on what they call health of the game solutions. They're helping golf facilities reduce their reliance on water. The USGA innovation team has launched a resource management app that helps course superintendents better allocate their resources and ensure a better experience for golfers. That better experience is exactly what the USGA wants golf to be both now and 50 years down the line in the future. That's why they're also modernizing the game's rules in conjunction with the RNA over in Scotland. And with that, they want your help. Visit USGA.org to check out the list of proposed rules changes that are expected to go into effect January 1, 2019. You can share your feedback with golf's governing bodies there online and help them in their grassroots growing of the game. I want to remind you of what a U.S. Open is known to be. It's the toughest test in golf. Par is great. Par will often win you the event. 
Andy Dillard himself says that six pars of the U.S. Open is the equivalent of one birdie. But then, what is the equivalent of six birdies? In the first six holes, no less. It's a nice little bonus for someone who was, as he said, dead-ass broke. Yeah, I remember hitting a two-iron and a seven-iron, 10 or 12 foot on the first hole, and I made my putt for birdie. And, and then the second hole, which was a par five, I remember I lipped out a, a little bitty chip from the front of the green for eagle. I could easily make Now, it comes as no surprise that this is a moment that Andy Dillard remembers really well. Ask him about it. He'll give you the yardages, the clubs, the reaction of the crowd. It's a U.S. Open record that still stands to this day. No other player has ever birdied the first six holes of a U.S. Open. And judging by how the USGA continues to make life difficult for the best players in the world, I doubt we'll ever see anyone do it again. Andy Dillard was still a bit of a no-name, though. He wasn't a PGA Tour member. He was broke for a reason. But as he set a record that day and polished off one of the rounds of the day with a 68, he returned home to a nice little surprise. I knew that Titleist paid a bunch of money for being on television with their stuff because the year before, a friend of mine, Billy Ray Brown, had almost won the U.S. Open. And uh, he had told me how much money uh, Titleist had paid him for wearing their visor, playing the ball, and carrying the bag. When I got home that night, walking into the house, and Willie Wood and I were staying together, and I had my bag on my shoulder, and he was sitting on the couch, and I and he started laughing, and, and I said, hey, did I get on TV today? And he said, get on TV, you were TV. At that point in time, I knew my, that I was probably going to make a lot of money with titles that week, and uh, that hot check had been covered. <laughs> Andy could have been a one-round wonder, in the same way that at every golf tournament, on every tour, someone needs to lead the tournament after 18 holes, but he wasn't. He made four birdies in an eagle on Friday to reach six under through 36 holes. Remember how he just wanted to finish 36 holes? All of a sudden, Bib Dillard was at the front of the golf world, playing in the final group on Saturday with Gil Morgan. Last place would now get him more than $5,000. So all things considered, Bib was in great shape, especially when you think about how he entered the event. Then he showed up for his third round Saturday. Uh, mentally, my thoughts were all, they were all organized and they were all uh, they were all working in a good manner. Uh, I looked uh, like I said I I looked back and studied that third day in that tournament for 15 years, wondering how, why, and what happened. I'll never forget. <clears throat> I was totally 100% fine and calm. I remember warming up at the practice tee and going to the putting green before the we teed off and walking out on the putting green and I was the only person out there and all these people are, are just, just surrounded. And all of a sudden it was at that moment that I, I knew, I thought, man, I'm on a pretty big stage. I was in a, an arena, a setting that I was uncomfortable with. I'd never been there before. And so because of that, it sped my tempo up just a fraction the fade that I'd been fa hitting on the first two days all of a sudden straightened out because my my tempo, my rhythm was a little bit quicker uh, than it was previously. So the balls that were ending up in the fairway were ending up two foot in the rough, and two foot at the rough at the U.S. Open 
as a disaster. That straightened out fade. It led to nine bogeys during Saturday's third round. After signing for a 79, Andy dropped back into the heap of competitors, now five shots back of Morgan. Was he going to win the U.S. Open now? Probably not. His confidence was shot. Was he ever going to win that U.S. Open anyway? With three more bogeys on Sunday's front nine, Andy was no longer chasing money. He knew he would get a decent check regardless of his finish. Instead, he was now chasing a place in the tournament. Sure, twenty or $30,000 is going to do a lot for his bleeding bank account. But if you knew Andy, you'd understand that to him, the U.S. Open doesn't mean an opportunity at a big-time purse or even titleist television dollars. The U.S. Open meant a chance for him to qualify for the Masters. This was Bibb's real lifelong goal. He'd be the first person to tell you so. Growing up in the South, playing this game since he was seven years old, Bibb always wanted to play the Masters. It's the first event that junior players talk about when they envision life on the PGA Tour. It's the one event to top every professional's bucket list. Sure, some dream to win it, but many dream just to play the Masters. And Andy Dillard was definitely one of those dreamers. It's the grandest tournament. It's got the most uh, history, the most prestige. Uh, it was the tournament that Jack had won six times or whatever. You know, just seeing the seeing it on television every year, just put goosebumps watching it. It's just to me, the Masters was uh, is and still is the the greatest golf tournament. Uh, it's the pinnacle of golf. Now I wanted to, sure, I wanted to play in the U.S. Open. Sure, I wanted to, I would love to have won it. But my primary purpose for qualifying and getting in the U.S. Open uh, was, cause to me, that was the easiest chance a guy had, the easiest way to qualify to get into the Masters. All he needed now to make that dream reality was a par on the 17th and a par on the 18th hole. This was a par three and a par five. It was a, it's a par three. There are 17 at Pebble. The tees were back, and it was dead. The wind was how I was blowing in our face. I think it was 223 yards. And while we were standing there waiting on the group in front of us to get out of the way, uh, Willie Woods' caddy came up to me and said, uh, hey, do you want to know how you stand for getting in the Masters? And I said, yeah. And he said, two pars and you're in. Uh, I wanted to take my driver out and start it out left and drop it back to the to the pin on the green, which I was totally comfortable doing. I was driving the ball so well that week and make you sick. And my caddy talked me into hitting three wood. And so anyways, I hit three wood, didn't make it to the bunker, was in the tall grass, knocked it on and, and two putted. I wanted to make sure I made par birdie on the last hole, didn't want to end the week up with a bogey. So I make par on 18. And then I'll never forget, I was standing in a corporate tent, and Gil Morgan had about a seven-foot birdie putt on the 18th hole, or excuse me, par putt. It didn't matter if he made it or missed it for him, money-wise, or he was he was already in the, the Masters. If he missed it, I was going to get in. And... uh I wanted to run out there out of that corporate tent and tell him to miss that putt, and I was in the Masters. And uh, he made the daggum putt and 
my tournament was over and I'd miss getting in the Masters by one shot. This is the unforgiving world of professional golf. During a week in which Andy made the biggest gamble of his career, when he was, quote, dead-ass busted, in which he made six birdies to start the U.S. Open, put six circles in a row on his scorecard, racing out to a lead at the U.S. freaking Open. All he could think about was missing out on the 93 Masters, an event still 10 months into the future. That's how we as golf fans, golf media, the golfing populace, that's how we realize that we've got it pretty good on our end of this maddening game. We can easily get over shooting 80 instead of shooting 79, or tapping in for birdie when you lip out an ace. We can get over the moments where we came super close and fell just short. Those chances come and go largely without consequence. When golf is your life, it's a lot more difficult to get over those moments. Andy Dillard would tie for 17th at the 1992 U.S. Open, by far the greatest performance of his career. But that oh-so-close finish, it would continue to haunt him. I couldn't watch that tournament for like 13 years, just from the the hurt, the the as bad as it still hurt, not getting in it, and knowing that I I was that close to get in that tournament, uh, and it didn't happen. And just to watch it on television was something I just couldn't, I couldn't do. It, it kind of, it took its toll on me. It, it destroyed me for a long time. So every year, the beginning of April comes around, what do you do instead? At that time, I did anything other than be around the television. <laughs> uh I could almost play every hole in my sleep, especially on the back nine, just like everybody else. And and uh, just to be able to go through that venue in front of all those people and to, to walk on the same greens that the greatest players in the world have walked on and played on, uh, um, it's, it's still, <laughs> it still grinds on you a little bit. Not as bad as it used to. <laughs> Is it because you came so close? Is it because you knew what you were fully capable of if you reached your potential? Absolutely. You know, to know and to want and to, to work your butt off your entire life uh, wanting something and to be that close to it and not get able, be able to taste it, it's like a, a room. Once a year that door opens and you, you go, oh. <laughs> I remember this, <laughs> but uh, to have your dreams, your whole life so close and right there in your hands, and and to have things go the way you want them to, and then it and the the ending doesn't end like you want it to, so it's very painful. It took a long time for that pain to go away. Andy was never able to vault back up to the PGA Tour like he so aptly did in his early twenties. After '92. Andy tried qualifying for the tour every single year. He missed it in 93, missed it in 1994, same in 95, same in 96, 97, 98, 99, 2000. Some years he'd get by living on the web.com tour, but other years it would have to be mini tour golf. All of it continued to be extremely less lucrative than the PGA Tour, where this young guy named Tiger Woods was upping the weekly purse and the popularity of an entire sport by himself. In 2001, Andy Diller was 40 years old. 
He had never played the Masters, and it still bothered him. He still wouldn't watch it on TV. He was at that age that professionals get to where they wonder how much longer they can continue to do this, continue investing hours and days and weeks and hundreds of thousands of dollars into lofty dreams that they've held since their youth. At 2001 Q School, Andy shot 16 under in the six round gauntlet held at Bears Lake Country Club in West Palm Beach. 36 tour cards were issued that final day. This was December 3rd, 2001. 36 dreams were made reality once again and Bibb tied for 37th, missing out on qualifying by just a single stroke. Players like Boo Weekly, Pat Perez, Ben Crane, Tommy Armour, Luke Donald, Sean Michael, they all graduated to the PGA Tour that year, and they all graduated to more profitable golf careers than Andy would ever know. He knew driving home that day on the 1,500-mile trek from West Palm Beach in Florida all the way up and across the country to Oklahoma City that his golf career was over. That was brutal, brother. There was, yes, it was. That was a long haul. I knew staring at that leader, that leaderboard at that tour school, and I just had a gut feeling in my heart that that was uh, gonna, but that was the last shot I was gonna have. Frankly, we could end the podcast right here. We could leave the Andy Dillard story at that. It would not be a happy ending, sure. But honestly, it would be a pretty accurate representation of what life can be like in professional golf. Sometimes things go your way, other times they don't. And you're left staring at the remnants of a dream, unfulfilled, as opposed to living the dream itself. As I was talking to Andy in May, just a month ago, as he lectured me on how awfully close he came to the Masters and how great his outlook on golf once was, how much potential he held, and how difficult it was to say goodbye to the game he loved since his childhood, I was waiting for him to explain the turnaround point, because he's a happy, jolly guy now at 55 years old. I was waiting for him to explain how he was finally able to bring himself into watching the Masters again. So, instead of ending the podcast, we're going to end with the turnaround. Professional golf is so very layered. The PGA Tour sits on top of the Web.com Tour, which sits on top of many tours all over the country. Inside the PGA Tour, you have the majors and the World Golf Championships and the Invitationals, and then the many other events that take place nearly every weekend. Performing well on one level gets you close enough to dream about the next one. It's often a perpetual tease. Top tenning at the St. Jude Classic gets you close enough to think about top tenning at the Memorial. Winning the Sony Open gets you close enough to dream about winning the British Open. Playing great at the U.S. Open gets you close enough, in the case of Andy Dillard, to think about playing great at the Masters. This type of always compared to the next best thing, it's a fateful exercise. In order for Andy Dillard to get over falling, just short of his childhood dreams, he needed to detach himself from the journey, from the grind, from golf itself, from the action he so desperately loved. When he finally stopped trying to qualify for the PGA Tour, that was when he was finally able to watch the Masters again, finally able to revel in the beauty of Augusta National, albeit through his television screen like millions and millions of other golf freaks around the world. Uh, I've got a photograph of the third round of the U.S. Open that year I played in it, and I looked and studied at that thing for thousands of hours wondering how, why, you know, what, and I've, I looked at that thing from every angle and every perspective you could. Uh, and finally, 
I came to the uh, the thought and the conclusion uh, that I came to was uh, that I had set a record in the U.S. Open of birdie in the first six holes, and nobody had ever done that in golf before. God had taken the Masters away from me, but he had given me something that I'd experienced something in golf that nobody else had ever experienced before. That took away, and I was allowed, I was able to start watching the Masters again and uh, kind of enjoying what I'd done at the U.S. Open. It is funny, I suppose, how we reach certain conclusions. So what does Andy Dillard do now? Like I said before, he's a salesman in the oil industry living in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. He bounces around from office to oil rig to office to oil rig. He leaves home at 6 a.m. every morning and listens to sports talk radio all day long. He calls himself a tank of gas a day type of guy. He considers himself lucky. As thankful as he was for the years he played professional golf, he's glad to be where he is now. He lives a faith-based life. He's still married to that country gal that he bought a plane ticket for back in the summer of 92. He's never played Augusta National, but he did get to play the Elotion Club. It's a very exclusive club in Arkansas. It was founded by Warren Stevens, son of the former Augusta National chairman Jack Stevens. The club is said to embody just about everything that Augusta National does. So when Andy Dillard thinks about the Elotion Club, he says that was his Augusta. Now 55 years old, Dillard can happily watch the Masters again, and he stays connected to the game as a coach. I'm probably the luckiest guy in the world the way I look at it. I teach a number of kids around Oklahoma City that are playing competitively. Kids that are wanting to go down the same path I just came off of, I teach them. I teach them from the experiences I had, uh, the good ones and the bad ones. And just like I tell them, hey, you're wanting to go down the same path I just went down. Let me help you out. And so uh, and I not only teach them about golf, but uh, the, the path of life as well. Thank you for listening to the golf.com podcast. Let me know what you think of this episode on Twitter at Sean underscore Zach. That's S E A N underscore Z A K. If you liked it a lot, Hey, go ahead and leave us a nice little review. I'd appreciate it until next time. I'm your host, Sean Zach.